Last week, we lost former UConn men's basketball coach Fred Schabel, who got the Huskies into the NCAA tournament in 1964 and 1965. And a man who knows a lot about the legacy of Fred Schabel and UConn basketball back in the 60s. His name is John Mason. He wrote columns about Coach Schabel. He wrote an article that was in the Hartford Current last week, and I thought it might be good to talk not just Coach Schabel, but also UConn basketball pre Jim Calhoun this morning. John, good morning. Thanks for joining me for today. And uh, what is your background as far as University of Connecticut men's basketball? Uh, Wayne, not much. Uh, I was a big West Balasuknia fan as a kid. Uh, Toby Kimball, of course. Uh, although I couldn't shoot anything like Wes, uh, I imagine being him. Uh, but that's about it. Just a big, big fan uh, as a 10-year-old. And you have been also a big fan of the man who recruited and coached West Balasuknia, Fred Shabel. What are your memories of Coach Shabel? Oh, I just love the guy. I, I was doing a story, a, a freelance story on Hugh Greer, and somebody had mentioned, you know, Fred Shabel followed him uh, after you died unexpectedly in 63. And so I just I found out he was alive and well, and I uh, drove to Philly with my girlfriend, and I interviewed him in October uh, 2022, and uh, he was – more than more than just friendly guy, sharp, sharp for 90 years old. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing part of the interview that you sent me. And one of the stories that jumped off the page at me was that, yeah, he did recruit West Balasuknia. How close did Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a.k.a. Lou Alcindor, come to playing at the University of Connecticut? Well, probably not very close, but I just give... Uh, Shavel, uh thumbs up for his tenacity and his uh, – he, he was just that type of guy to think that Lou Alcindor would be a Husky. You know, he drove to, to uh, Power Memorial Academy where uh, Lou Alcindor, of course, is uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar now. And he tried to, you know, talk to Alcindor after a game. He walked into the locker room, he told me, uh, and he found that uh, uh, Alcindor was talking to Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier from uh, UCLA, and he just turned around and headed back to UConn. He never did speak with him. I also enjoyed hearing Shable's story about the long lines outside that arena. A lot of people were coming to see Lou Alcindor. They were, yep, yep. They were, uh, he was very popular, of course, and then uh, he went on to UCLA. But yeah, no, he was, he was, uh, he was something. You and I were actually having an email exchange yesterday about the 1966 UConn men's basketball team, how the team and the coaching staff thought that they would be going to the NIT. Then what happened? Yeah, after the last game of the season, uh, uh, Shabel and the players expected an NIT invite. In fact, they got one. And uh, in what walked um, uh, then-President Homer Babbage with then-Governor uh, John, is it John Dempsey, I believe? Yes, John Dempsey. Yeah, and uh, just told him that they weren't accepting the invite. And, uh, you know, Shabel was devastated. He was on this mission to make UConn into a national power, uh, nationally known. And, of course, the players were devastated. And, you know, when I think of that story, I think of Jim Calhoun. And had he got that same uh, situation in 88 when he was invited to the NIT, which they actually won, and, uh, you know, just the reaction. I mean, uh, Shabel just never got over that, and especially Tommy Penders. I guess he confronted 
uh, Babbage about it a couple of days later and asked why, why are, you know, because these guys had played together for two years now. And, uh, you know, they, they thought they, they were going to be one of 14 teams in that tournament playing at Madison Square Garden, but it wasn't to be. And uh, they, uh, Pender still to this day says it's the biggest disappointment of his uh, athletic career. So, And we don't know the real reason why. Do you have any theories on why they weren't allowed to go to the postseason tournament? Yeah, I, I do have a theory, and it's uh, it, but it's hearsay, and I really can't verify it independently, so I really can't comment. Uh, you know, Penders approached him and said some things to him, and he said some things to Penders, and I don't think uh, Shable, well, Shable said he never really spoke to Babbage about it. He never asked him why, but uh, Babbage had his reasons, I'm sure. One amazing story that I think people in today's basketball world will just shake their head at, but when Fred Schabel arrived at UConn, and we talked about how he technically replaced Hugh Greer, but really Greer died midseason and George Wigton took over as the interim coach, and then the following year is when Fred Schabel, an assistant coach at Duke, was called up here to UConn and was extremely successful in his four years coaching here, but... When Fred Schabel arrived at UConn in April of 1963, he discovered there were no full scholarships available, financial or academic. It's no secret these days, college athletes at many levels get financial assistance scholarships. So what was the story behind that? And did Schabel eventually get some of his players scholarships? Yeah, he did. Uh, I guess J.O. Christian, who was the athletic director at the time, thought full scholarships were for for jock schools. That's what uh, Shable said. And, you know, Shable, through the the first few months, convinced him differently that if he wanted to play on a national level, level, he had to attract top players. And, of course, one of the first players was West Balasuknia. Uh, At the time, Balasuknia had signed with Syracuse, was headed to Syracuse, and... uh, you know, Shabel had known Balasuknia when he was at Duke. He was the recruiter for the Eastern Coast, so he knew him, had had him over, uh, been to either his house or visited him a couple of times. So I guess eventually uh, Christian uh, came around and, and offered and gave him some scholarships. Actually, uh, Shabel had four or five scholarships that year that he had full scholarships for Halawati and a couple of the other guys. I think Tommy Penders had a baseball scholarship. So he convinced Balasuknia, him and uh, Don Ruck, I think his name was, he was an alumni uh, person, drove out to Balasuknia's house and uh, offered him a scholarship. And, and West uh, accepted, of course, and uh, the Kipsey Popper era began. Uh, uh, Maureen Balasuknia, West's wife, said it was Shables convincing that uh, West had great op- educational opportunities at UConn more than athletic. And I think that's what, what swayed him to take the UConn uh, scholarship over Syracuse. Now let's flash back to the uh, second year of the Shable era there. Actually, it was the 63-64 season when they beat Princeton, the famous Perno stole the ball game. So first off, any thoughts about the game? And secondly, about after they came home from that NCAA Sweet 16 and Elite Eight trip. I, I didn't know the magnitude of that game until I started researching it and talking to Perno, talking to Shable about it. I mean, that was a big thing because up until that time, Hugh Greer had little success in, in tournament play. Uh, I think he was one in seven. And I was speaking to actually Sandy Greer, who's Hugh Greer's son. He's his youngest son. 
And he told me his father was under tremendous pressure to win, but only to win the Yankee Conference. That tournament play was icing on the cake. That's all UConn wanted was that Yankee Conference title. And Shable comes in and says, no, that's not enough. I want, you know, tournament play. I want, you know, and, and that's what he did his first year. And I think that helped his transition into UConn because I think J.O. Christian and Homer Babbage weren't really big-time athletic-oriented administrators. I think they were more focused on academics. So that victory, uh, you know, not only put the UConn in national limelight, it just it just triggered something where people thought these guys can compete on a national level. So, and of course, you know, Perno Steel is like not in the category of Havlicek Steel, but something where UConn players and, and fans in the 60s uh, will always remember. No, but I do think that his steal is up there in the great moments of UConn history, along with Kemba's shot, with Tate George's shot. Bradley, double team, holds the ball, stolen by Perno. Don Perno steals with 18 seconds from Bradley. Perno dribbles right, holds the ball in the corner, Della Sala, 14 seconds. Perno to Slumsensky, 10 seconds to go. In the corner, Kimball. Kimball in the corner. Clears it out to Slumsensky, 7 seconds, 6 seconds. Della Sala has the ball. Beats to Perno with 3 seconds. Who shoots? No good, the rebound. There's the gun. UConn has won 52 to 50. The Huskies go into the finals of the East. Wow. Wow, indeed. George Ehrlich, the call there back in 1964 in Raleigh, North Carolina, of the famous Perno stole the ball game against Bill Bradley and Princeton. And unlike nowadays, when you get a day off before you play your next game, in this case, the Elite Eight, you play the next day and the Huskies got their doors blown off by Duke. But still, getting to the Elite Eight was an amazing accomplishment for that era of UConn men's basketball. What happened on the welcome home at the airport? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, who knows the number of people, but, you know, Shable said over a 1,000. I mean, he was just amazed that, you know, these fans came out and showed their loyalty after a loss, after they, they got their butts kicked, he said. And, and I think they actually carried him off the, the, the from the, not the plane, but carried him somewhere. And uh, the players, Ron Ritter and, and some of these guys were saying it was, you know, just really emotionally moving and, uh just something they'll never forget, the, the loyalty and support of UConn fans. So Fred Shable stayed until 1967. And by the way, after that year, I'd like to say the cupboard was pretty bare. A lot of great players, including West Belisukni, had played their last year there. Did Fred Shable want to stay at UConn? And where did he wind up going? Well, he did. He, you know, he got tired of coaching, he said, and he wanted to get into management. So he applied for the AD job. I think J.L. Christian was uh, was leaving that year. I don't know if it was 67 or 68. J.L. Christian had been there since 1934 when he was hired as the football coach. And Shable applied for the job, got the support of two key selection committee members. I think it was Bill Ratchford and uh, Aaron Ment, who was a Bridgeport lawyer, uh, who told Shable, you know, they, they, he, they had, he had their endorsement. But... Um, you know, uh, he got a call from uh, Homer Babbage and said, you know, he was giving the job to someone else. And uh, as you know, John Toner, the ex-football player, uh, football coach, got the job and he was in that position for 18 years. Um, I think Shable actually, and you had mentioned this, was the assistant under Toner for I don't know how many months before he took the job at um, 
University of Pennsylvania as the AD. But uh, yeah, that was a sore subject for Shable because he thought he could do some, some, you know, some uh, big things in that position, but it wasn't to be. So, and I think also from what I read that. Shable did not want to be a lifelong coach. He didn't want to be a Jim Calhoun and coach for 30 years. He didn't want to have, I think the quote was, a whistle around his neck. He wanted to go into administration, whether it would be an athletic director at UConn or, as it turned out, uh, moving on to Penn. And then eventually he got out of that together and ran uh, the Spectacor Corporation down in Philadelphia, which is the whole cable thing and also all the big sports arenas down there. So it didn't seem like he wanted to stick around coaching forever as well. What impressions did you get from Fred Shabel, though, about following in the footsteps of a legend like Hugh Greer? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, he felt no intimidation. He felt no pressure. Um, what he did was he went over the uh, schedule with uh, Dick, uh, Vic Bubis, was his uh, coach at, uh, at Duke. And, you know, it's funny. He said, uh, you know, you can beat Maine twice. Uh, you'll pick him up on a full court. I'm reading from from his comments. You'll pick him up on a full court press before they get off the bus. You'll beat Vermont. You'll beat New Hampshire twice. You'll split with Massachusetts. You'll go down to New York and play Fordham and Manhattan. You'll beat one of them. You'll get your 17 victories. Then you got to schedule two big-time football schools who don't play good basketball. You schedule a SMU or Baylor to beat one of them, and you get yourself in the New York Times. you got to take your take the job. That was, you know, from from his, you know. But when he arrived at UConn, you know, of course, everybody was comparing him to Hugh Greer. Now, Hugh Greer, I don't know how many times I heard that Hugh Greer was a gentleman where Shable came in. He was loud. He was opinionated. He coached standing up where, Shab- uh, you know, Greer never, you know, sat on the bench, never really yelled. And you had two extreme personalities, two opposite personalities. And there was some, you know, comparison and friction uh, between man with uh, J.O. Christian and, and Shable when he initially started. But, you know, I think he came around to, to believe in him, especially when you win like that your first two years, you know, uh, first year, year anyway. So. And, John, I was also intrigued to read some of the stuff calling Shable gruff and tough and things like that. Well, I met him a number of times, including having lunch with him down in Philadelphia. You've talked to him just a couple of years ago. I didn't find him to be that way at all. He was a sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think he's tough. Well, I mean, I think he was opinionated, and if he wanted something, he went after it. And, you know, he was willing to confront uh, UConn Brass, and, you know, he needed those scholarships coming in. He thought, you know— if you want, you know, that's the problem with, you know, when the, you know, when the administration sees something differently than the coach. And I think Shable took the job with the idea that he was going to, you know, he knew Hugh Greer had done a great job regionally, but he wanted to, like I said, you know, recruit nationally. He didn't want to recruit just in the area, in New England area. Uh, he had a lot of big plans for, uh, for UConn. John, Fred Shable was 72-29, and 29, four Yankee Conference regular season titles, three NCAA tournament bids. Do you think he will ever be put in the Huskies of Honor at Gamble? Uh, I do. Yeah, I do, actually. Um, well, he should be, and it's, it's up to UConn, I guess, of course. But, uh, you know, ask any of his players. The problem is the people in power weren't around for, for what he did. They didn't they really can't understand the vibe that this guy brought to the school, brought to people. And it's hard to judge something that was 60 years ago when you weren't even born. So, um, 
or were you, you know, you were a child or something. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope he does, you know, I mean, we kind of kidded about it in the interview. He was 90 and, you know, I took a while to write the story and I think he got a little frustrated with me. He called me a couple of times and said, well, where's the story? Where, where is it going to, is this a column or are you, are you, where are you going to, you know, and I tried to pitch the story around and I, you know, I couldn't get anyone to take it. So um, finally, Connecticut Mirror um, Viewpoints uh, published it and, uh, and he died two days later. So it was kind of ironic that, you know, I think he saw the story. I had sent him the, the story a month before he died and, you know, he gave me a Lastly, John, you talk about the Mount Rushmore of UConn coaches. Hugh Greer would be there. I think D. Rowe would be there. I think Fred Schabel would be on that. And Jim Calhoun clearly would be on that as well. Maybe at some point down the road, Dan Hurley as well. But what are your thoughts on Jim Calhoun? My thoughts are I love the guy for just returning my call. That's my thought. Um, You know, when I wrote the original story, I thought it would be so much more have so much more weight to have Calhoun comment. And, and, you know, and my, my idea was, you know, does Shable deserve a spot at the Husky of Honor? Calhoun wouldn't comment on that, but he did comment on, you know, the fact that the guy was the real deal, that he had, you know, intentions of, of a national stage. And for that, I'm grateful. So. John, great memories of the sixties with coach Fred Shable at UConn. Thank you for joining me this morning. Okay, great. Thanks for uh, giving me the time. I appreciate it. That's freelance writer John Mason, our guest on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.